0: Thank you. Thank you for the warmth of your welcome. Uh, it would help me enormously if you'd have the Bible reading we had just now open in front of you uh, on page 1161. 1161 from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. When I was growing up, the battle we used to face was very simple. Religion is False. Christianity is false. There was a battery of arguments, normally from Freud, Marx and Darwin, that proved that religion was false. Well we now know that Freud lied about his data and Marx lied about his data, and we have ongoing debates over the issue of Darwin and intelligent design. We haven't given up on those ones. Then the battle shifted. Not from all religion is false, but to all religions are true. It sounds much more generous and much more accepting to say that, doesn't it? Much more tolerant. And we've had to engage in a different kind of battle. Perhaps you've done it. Try to talk to people who think all religions are equally true. You can prove that it's not true very simply. Take, for example... Christianity and Islam. I'm not going to say anything disrespectful about Islam whatsoever. The New Testament says repeatedly and as a core issue that Jesus Christ died on the cross. The Quran says repeatedly and in terms that Jesus did not die on the cross. They both say it repeatedly. Both books know what they're saying. Now, either the New Testament is true and the Quran is false, or the Quran is true and the New Testament is false, or they're both false. Three options. The one thing that can't be true is that both are right, because they're inconsistent, which proves that Buddhism is false because it wants to say that both are true. (laughs) The debate's shifted on a little bit further now. Religion may be true, may be false. It's probably false if it's helpful for you. Go for it. But there are varieties of religion which are dangerous. And the kinds of religion which are dangerous are those like Christianity or Islam that claim to have exclusive Truth. Now in various parts of the world you can see various kinds of uh, dangerous religions. People will point to India and the uh, Hindu BJP party and what they did there. Or, uh, historically, Christianity, you can find some very unpleasant things lurking around in our dark corners. But Christianity, we're told today, is dangerous precisely because we make truth claims. But in, that must mean that other people's views Are false. And we're starting to see what Britain's response to those truth claims is. There was one attempt, you remember, with the uh, religious hatred, incitement to religious hatred bill a while back, which fell in the House of Commons. I think we will see another one coming fairly soon with the sexual orientation regulations this autumn. Exclusive truth claims are not popular, and we are thought to be dangerous. How do we respond? There's a very English way to respond, isn't there? Which is to do a Michael Winner. Just calm down. Calm down. And, and just do an English... I mean, the, the thing the English don't do is make a fuss. We'll avoid anything to, to make a fuss. And so I fear that we're not going to make a fuss over this. But biblically, that's not an option. If what we're going to discover in tonight's passage is true, then our culture and the Lord Jesus Christ, are on a collision course. And if we stay loyal to Christ, we're going to be on a collision course with our culture. And if we stay loyal to our culture, we're going to be on collision course with the Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage, you see, doesn't look at the problem and say, well, let me give you a balanced, rounded solution that looks at all the options and come to a judicious kind of conclusion. It hangs out for an extreme and quite a strong one. Paul says basically two things in this section. And the first is this. We must close our hearts to compromise. Close our hearts to compromise. It is a stark distinction. Look at what he says. Verse 16. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That's a verse that, out of context, people have taken to mean you shouldn't marry someone who isn't a Christian. I don't think that verse says that. What the verse is saying is, in our terms, don't get into bed with unbelievers. Don't sleep around with lies. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? In fact, there's a a whole sequence of them, isn't there? He calls it wickedness, darkness. Belial, another word for, uh, for Satan. Unbelief, idolatry. Why must we close our hearts? Well, look at what he says about the two different worlds. On the one hand, you've got the temple of God. It's the top of page 1162. The temple of God. We are the temple of the living God. And on the other hand, you have idolatry and Paul thinks in quite physical terms, about the temples in Corinth. He says, here is a radically polarised world. You are the temple of the living God. So why are you considering, in their case, literally going into the temples of the dead ones? And then he pulls up a, a wonderful smorgasbord of Six Old Testament passages. We're not going to uh, turn them up. You can check them up later with the footnotes. Around about six passages, but he blends them together. They've got two things in common, though. The first is this: there is a sequence of thinking. Let's read them, and uh, you'll see what I mean. Therefore, oh, I'll of up on. We'll go from about uh, halfway through. The previous verse. I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. There's a sequence of thinking here. God lives among us and we belong to him. Therefore we should separate ourselves out from anything which is anti-God, unclean in this passage here. We should not even touch it, not even think about it. And if we do that, we will continue to belong to him. So says, Paul, peel off everything that expresses that kind of cultural rebellion against God, religious rebellion against God. Just strip it off, have nothing to do with it. It would have been tough in those days. The temples in Corinth were, they were a cross between all sorts of things. It was where a businessman would do his business uh, and meet his friends. I say his because I'm doing that quite deliberately for the temples in Corinth. Um, meet his business partners, have a drink, have a meal, casual sex make new acquaintances. It was sort of a political club as well, a mix of all kinds of things. And if someone said they weren't going to take part in that, they were almost committing suicide for their business. Because all their contacts, all their the people who could pull strings for them in Corinth, they wouldn't know them. But, says Paul, have nothing to do with that kind of temple. Now, We maybe don't have those kinds of temples, but we have the same kind of idea. And you will have found, if you are the only one at work who actually holds the Lord Jesus in respect, rather than using his name as a swear word, you will know, even if you've never said anything about it, that you feel slightly different, slightly isolated. (laughs) I heard recently about somebody who works for a a big company. And it's one of those big companies that has adopted a very ethical approach to management and very into relationships. Not a Christian company at all, but very into relationships and all sorts of things and values. and... And it was quite difficult for this person to make any kind of Christian witness until it came to the moment where he did something wrong. Everybody else in the company would cover it up, blame somebody else. He was the only person who would go to somebody else and say, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. Please forgive me. And then marked him out as being rather different. He wouldn't take part of the blame game. There's a sequence of thought here. We just separate ourselves out, be different. Second thing they have in common... Is their promises? Paul says that in chapter seven, verse one, doesn't he? Since we have these promises, dear friends, just cast your eye down them. I will live with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. I will receive you. Fantastic promises, aren't they? Now, why do you need promises if you're going to stay unclean, if you're going to stay clean and peel off all this other stuff? Why do you need those promises? Because you're going to feel very alone. You're going to feel very isolated. And you need to know at that point that God, if nobody else stands with you, that God says you're doing the right thing in making your stand, even though... Nobody else seems to notice. The promises here are all, they have two Bible backgrounds. Some of them come from the Exodus when God's people had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They were in the desert and they had nothing but trust in God. And the other half come from the time when God's people were in exile in Babylon, waiting for God to act to bring them back to their promised land. They had nothing but God's promises. Otherwise, they were completely isolated. And says, Paul, we have God's promises that he will not leave us to our own devices when we make a stand for him. It's a fantastic kind of promise he's got here. The first century, rather like the 21st century, was a tolerant, pluralist, multi-faith society. And the only thing it wouldn't tolerate was those who wouldn't tolerate a multi-faith society, those who claimed they had a, an exclusive truth claim. And the edge to this passage is exactly the same edge as we have here. Sheffield has a mosque. I, driving here, from the way from the station, I, put, I went past the, the new Buddhist prayer hall. There's so all kinds of buildings. How, what are you, how are you going to relate to those kinds of things? Yes, you're going to be good neighbours and do all sorts of things, aren't you? But Let's not go, not too far, but let's get it right, shall we, in how we relate. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being in India briefly with Operation Mobilization at their headquarters in Hyderabad. And there in Hyderabad, they had opened a wonderful new Hindu temple, something of a local tourist attraction. And thousands of people were going to see this amazing building. And my host said, um, would you like to go and have a look? And I said, all right, let's go and have a look. And he said, I should warn you that we'll have to take our shoes off so that, they, uh, so that we show respect to the temple. And I said, I don't think I want to do that. And my host said, I'm so glad, neither do I. So we didn't go in. Because to go in on their terms would have meant showing respect to something which in Paul's terms, hard words is uncleanness and idolatry. We can get even sharper here, I think, because there are hints, as Paul said, hints, this early in 2 Corinthians, that Paul is dealing with false teachers. This problem has been rumbling around. You saw them last week. They'll get even sharper as you go further into into, uh, 2 Corinthians. I reckon it's worth... Paul saying had nothing to do with Christians who teach that kind of false teaching, or professing Christians, separate out from that kind of thing, from that kind of filthy, filthy, polluting content. Now, if Paul is right here, we mustn't be at all surprised when there is any kind of uncleanness in churches, in denominations. If the Bible is true, we must expect to find false teaching. The question is, what do we do about it? I think Paul is saying here, don't be surprised when the battles begin and don't get weary in doing good. Fullwood is well known. You've become very well known in the last 15 years or so for some very courageous stands that you've made. It's the kind of reputation you don't really want and which would go away. But you've got it. And I'm sure there are times when you've sat there and you thought, oh, we're not in the papers again, are we? Not the television cameras poking around our church again. We're not in trouble with the diocese again, are we? And I'm sure sometimes the PCC have thought, let's just tone it down a bit, shall we? Let's, let's, let's just get on with the work. And Paul says here, that is the work. Or at least part of it, an aspect of it. Ducking away from that is to duck away from the work. Back in the 1960s, Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott had a public discussion which turned into a a disagreement which has affected things for the last 40 years or so. And the difference was that Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quoting this verse, he said, Come out and be separate. Leave the Church of England. And John Stott said, no, no, we're going to stay in to fight it, to win it. I don't know what I'd have thought if I was in the 1960s, I don't know which way I would have, I'd have gone, to be honest. But I do know that no church, no denomination will be without its false teaching. You can't make one that is completely pristine and pure. There will always be the battle to fight wherever we are. So, that's Paul's first lesson. We must close our hearts to compromise. The second lesson, though, is we must open our hearts to him. Make room, he says, verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. And he's picking up something he said slightly earlier at the end of uh, Uh, the previous passage in verse 11 of chapter 6. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. You may have spotted a little theme in 2 Corinthians about being genuine, being authentic as a Christian. Chapter 5, verse 12. So that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Paul is no hard-hearted person. For him, relationships are hugely important. And when Christians love one another, it is incredibly attractive. Let me take you back just under a year to last summer, late August. Late August, and over the Bahamas, the storm clouds begin to gather. And over two or three days, they turn into Hurricane Katrina. Remember, that devastated uh, the, the southern parts of the states, Louisiana, Mississippi, and so on. As the storm clouds unfolded, and in particular, as the, uh, the flood waters became obvious and the, the depth of desolation down there became clear. One pastor was watching it on the news and he was someone who lived further on the coast, had escaped this hurricane, but the year before had been devastated by an earlier one. His name was Rick Long. According to Long, quote, it was fresh on our minds how churches from Mississippi and Louisiana served us. We were ready. We wanted to go and serve somebody in the same way that we had been served. So they got together food and clothing and a chain of supply and moved across. He went on a tour looking for somewhere to serve. A man said to him, would you like to go somewhere where there is a profound need, somewhere that isn't likely to get much response because it's not a glamorous site, not a destination spot like New Orleans or a gaming district like Biloxi. And he went somewhere that nobody had heard of. Where there were not only no support, the police had gone, the army had gone, the ambulances weren't operating at all. He had a friend further north in the States whom he kept in touch with. I called him, said the friend, as he was beginning this tour of the coast, and he said, I will call and give you an update. And what they did was they coordinated a major national response. It didn't hit the headlines at all. We didn't hear about this. There was a major national response from the churches to get food and clothing down there to the survivors of Hurricane Katrina. 1,300 dead. They're still a year on now building houses and flying them in. They're doing prefabs in car parks and churches in some parts of the country and flying them in somewhere else. Astonishing work. They were, they were sorting the clothes in one place so that somebody who had, the day before, had a good job and a house and lost everything at all, wasn't going to be rooting around in muddy puddles to find clothes. But knew what size they were, knew what they wanted, and they were there on the rack. Said one pastor, I don't want the clothes that you're going to be giving to a charity shop. I want the stuff you like wearing, and they can wear it too. Let's treat them with dignity. And it's still going on a year later. And what drove the whole thing? Well, let me remind you of what the guy said at the outset. It was fresh on our minds how churches from Mississippi and Louisiana served us. We were ready. We wanted to go and serve somebody the same way that we had been served. Open hearts, you see what Paul's talking about. Open wide your hearts. And when Christians love one another, it is incredibly attractive. But, there's more to this passage than just Christians being open-hearted to other Christians. Christians loving other Christians. The question is, will we open our hearts to Paul? Make room for us in your hearts, he argues here. And the issue is a church which is beginning to, for diplomatic reasons, perhaps distance themselves from Paul. And the kind of uh, lines we hear today, we're going around then, I suppose. Jesus is the nice one. Paul is the nasty one. Paul distorts Christianity. Paul distorts if you look at verse 2, you can see the accusations against him. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. are oh, the accusations there. Paul is a distorter of Christianity, only in it for the money. And whether it's the area of belief, oh, you know Paul, he's turned a simple message into a complex dogma. He's turned an inclusive message into an exclusive creed or whether it's behaviour. Men and women, sexuality, whatever it is, Jesus got it right, he was nice and said nothing at all, Paul said something and got it wrong. And so Paul is the whipping boy. Of course Paul isn't our saviour, or our redeemer, or our lord. Of course Paul was just a saved sinner like the rest of us. He even calls himself at one point the chief of sinners, the worst of the bunch. But in God's good plan... He has a place, a unique place, as an apostle, with authority. And we cannot make room for Jesus without making room for the apostles and their teaching about him. And here, the battle is over Paul. Flip back with me, with you, and create a breeze to chapter 2. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. Or chapter 5, verse 18. all this wonderful message is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, i.e. me, Paul, and my team, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. You cannot separate Paul from Jesus. That is a very complex battleground today. And it is, I guess, the second cost that Paul alerts us to. It costs us to close our hearts to compromise, and it will probably cost us in the eyes of our non-Christian friends. And it will cost us to open our hearts to Paul. And it will probably cost us in the eyes of professing Christians, whom we know. And we will again feel suddenly very alone. We come from a denomination where it is now common to blame Paul for being culture bound short-sighted, not thinking through the implications of the gospel. We can patronise him and say he didn't see everything we can see, but that's the approach. It is frequent to take that kind of approach to him. And Paul here says, no, no, no. If you're going to be close to compromise, you've got to be open to the genuine Christian message. Paul's message is the message The God he talks about is the living God. All the other gods are idols. We can't do anything else. You and I don't know when there's going to be the next occasion where we're going to have to make a stand. Maybe you're a lawyer or a member of... you're a governor of a local school. Maybe you're a social worker or a local counsellor. Maybe you're just someone who tries to be good neighbours. You and I don't know when will be the next occasion when we're going to have to make a stand for biblical truth and biblical values. It's worth remembering, number one, that God tells us to do it and he promises he'll be with us as we do it. We are his temple. He dwells in us. And secondly remember that we must do it and therefore it's worth planning in advance how we're going to respond. I'm going to guess we have a couple of minutes quiet now to think through again what this passage says and I don't know you friends, I don't know how this bites. To think through in the next week or so where you think you might have to make a stand for Christian values and what you're going to say in advance. Let's be quiet for a minute. Let's think about the The motivation as to why we should make such a stand. We've thought about getting into bed with unbelief and wickedness and darkness and evil and idolatry. And we've thought about being the temple of the living God. And the promises he makes to us. And then we thought about the need to not only close our hearts to compromise, but to open our hearts to Paul. think about that moment where you expect you're going to have to make a stand for being that very unpopular thing a Christian who thinks the Bible is true Heavenly Father thank you for this amazing list of promises where you promise us that you will be with us, that you promise that you live in us and we are your temple, where you promise that you will wel- welcome us and receive us as your sons and daughters. And thank you that those promises are ours at the very moment when we have to make a stand that will be unpopular. Thank you that at that point of our need, you promise that you're with us. And so now we pray for those events we have coming up where we expect we may have to make a stand for you. We pray that you'll help us to be courageous and to be truthful and to speak and act in line with the gospel. Amen. Our closing song is another big exclusive truth.